welcome to A Wee Bit of War, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Northern Ireland during the Second World War. I'm your host, Scott Edgar, and in this episode, we're talking again about the Belfast Blitz, and in particular, the diaries of Miss Doreen Bates. For this, we're joined by the author of the brand new novel, These Days, Lucy Caldwell, and the daughter of the aforementioned Miss Bates, Dr. Margaret Aziri. Good morning, uh, Lucy and Margaret. You're both very welcome to the podcast. It's an honour to speak to two people who know the person and the writings of Doreen Bates so well. In last month's episode, we featured a series of women from the Belfast Blitz. Um, Predominant among them was Doreen Bates, a civil servant from London who relocated to the east side of the city of Belfast about a month before the Luftwaffe attacks. Uh, Both our guests in this episode know, know Doreen incredibly well. Uh, firstly, Dr. Margaret Aziri, can you give us a little introduction as to who you are? And for those who don't know, what is your connection to Dorian Bates? Yes, yes, I'm Margaret Aziri. I'm a retired neuropathologist, professor of neuropathology at Oxford. And Dorian Bates was my mother. So I have a very close connection with her. And um, it's a pleasure to be able to tell you about her. She, she'd let, we knew she'd written a diary um, in her adult life. She told us that when she was alive. She didn't allow us to read it until after she died. She said we could read it after she died. And we did, and we thought it was so interesting that we'd like to make it more widely available. So I word processed it and then edited it. And um, Penguin were kind enough to publish it in 2016. That was just part of her diary. She's written a diary for well over 30 years, but um, this was the uh, an early seven year um, part of it. And for those who haven't read it, it is an incredible, uh, an incredible piece of work. And we'll, we'll let you know later on how you can get a hold of, of that book. Uh, Lucy, you have a different connection more to the writings of this amazing woman. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to Doreen? That's right. I first came across Doreen's diaries in my own research about the Belfast Blitz. Um, funnily, there's a, a mother and, and child connection because for a while, my son, when he was about two, was obsessed with the Janet and Alan Alberg book, Peepo. It's about a day in the life of a baby set against a backdrop of the London Blitz. Um, and I had to read him that book night after night for months. And at the time, we were living in this flat in East London in the Docklands, in a street that had been completely devastated by, by the London Blitz. And it was so strange. I was reading this to him in our flat which was a a warehouse conversion Victorian and thinking in this very room in this bed we would have been safe from the entire blitz but a meter away we wouldn't have been you know the the, most of the street was flattened and and as I was thinking this I started to think of how there'd been a Belfast blitz as well and I knew very little about it there's only one novel um Brian Moore the Emperor of Ice Cream fantastic novel that was reissued last year by Turnpike press um, but there was very very little else and so I started reading everything I could about the Belfast Blitz um, and I came across some of the um, extracts from Doreen Bates's diary I came across them in this brilliant book by um, Stephen Dowds and you'll know it's it's the Belfast Blitz people story and it's told through excerpts from newspapers and 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 diaries 
And one of the voices that just grabbed me was this voice of Doreen Bates. And so I read her diaries, the volume we've been discussing that's published by Penguin. Um, and she just is spellbinding. She was so vivid. She just leapt from the page. She felt so alive. I felt such an immediate connection to her, such an affinity with her. And, you know, as a novelist, the easiest thing for me would have been to have made up a character. I don't know, I might have called her Eileen Yates, you know, in homage or something, but it would have been to make up a character based on this, this true, true story of this woman. But it felt to me very clearly that she wants to be part of my novel. You know, I, I couldn't put it any other way. She and there are several real life characters in the book as well. Another is Moya Woodside. And so I wrote a draft of my novel, um, weaving together some of the stories that I researched, the true stories, my fictional characters, and these real women. And then the terrifying thing for me was having to send the manuscript of my novel to the estate of Doreen Bates. Um, in my novel, she's pregnant. Um, she doesn't know that she's pregnant with twins. I didn't know when sending my manuscript off to Penguin that it was going to be her twins who would read the novel and, and very, very graciously give me their approval to use their mother as a character in my book. And Margaret, obviously you are one of those twins and you know Doreen better than most people. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about her early life, her work, uh, her, uh, let's call it, well-documented love life in the diaries and, and her journey to Belfast? Yes, yeah, she, she was born in 1906. Uh, she, she was brought up in, in what might have seemed like quite a conventional family. She, she had a younger sister. There were these two girls and their parents were Rosa and Wyndham Bates. And Rosa was um, from Cornwall, just into Cornwall, just close to Plymouth. And she had had very little education. She had had to leave school at 13. And although she was very bright and very creative, she was a wonderful person, um, she hadn't had much education. And I think that made her feel that she wanted her children to have a good education, um, which she then ensured happened. And my mother and her sister went to a rather conventional um, Melbourne uh, college, which was not particularly academic. And my mother obviously learned the basics there. But then she went to Croydon High School, one of the GDST schools, um, which was much more um, stimulating. And she there really flourished in the sixth form. And uh, they suggested that she should try for university, which her parents were willing to finance. Um, and so she went to Royal Holloway College where she read history. She was always terribly interested in history. Uh, particularly social history. And um, I think her parents didn't realize that this would mean that she would be exposed to a much wider range of people. They were very religious, but of course, some of the people at Royal Holloway College were more um, questioning and agnostic about the way that lives were lived then. And, and Doreen just embraced this more open, uh, liberal way of thinking about world and, and her place in it. And um, this, I think, led to her being able to strike out a bit on her own. Um, so she joined, she joined the income tax people because she said that really the, the two things that were open to her after she got her history degree were 
um, a civil service or, the, or teaching, and she couldn't face the idea of teaching. She thought it would be terrifying. So she became an income tax inspector locally and lived at home. And then she, they, the, the income tax in land revenue people uh, had her transferred to London, which is where she met Eve, um, my father. And um, she, she was very bright and very good. She didn't really enjoy the, the, the job, but she, want, she liked the security of it and the fact that it gave her a regular income and would eventually lead to her being able to lead a more independent life. Um, but actually she was very good at her job. And um, about a month before, well, no, a few months before she went to Ireland, to Northern Ireland, she had um, applied to be promoted. And there was only one other woman who'd been promoted above the level that she was at, at that time. And initially she, she wasn't promoted, they refused her application, but she had the chance to appeal. And she did appeal and she won her appeal. There's a rather nice uh, entry in her diary about the interview that she had when she was appealing against uh, this decision and they did promote her. But once she'd been promoted, um, her future was likely to be as the head of an inland revenue office. And they decided that they thought she should go to Ennis Killen as the head of the Ennis Killen Inland Revenue Office. Um, and she was started off in Belfast as a sort of first step on the move to Ennis Killen. But of course, Ennis Killen would have been the very last place that would have been good for her to try and bring up um, two children as an unmarried mother. And, um, she didn't know when it, that the Inland Revenue only gave her just over a month to adjust to the idea that she was to go to, to Belfast, uh, which wasn't very long. It was the middle of the war. Her mother had been widowed about 18 months before, and she felt that she was needed in her, in her family in South London to support her mother and also pay the bills and so on. So she was very upset and of course it would mean leaving E behind and it, it was a it was a devastating sort of stage of her career um, and she wondered whether she might actually even leave the inland revenue because she didn't want to do it but eventually with the support of her some of her colleagues and also E they thought she ought to go and she came around to thinking she ought to go and that's what happened. She is in the diaries. She is, as, as Margaret says, it's interesting because in the diaries, one of the reasons that she decides that she has to go is sort of for the sisterhood. She decides that she can't be a woman who's been promoted to this level and not go. And she's her diaries, I think they're one of the most extraordinary chronicles of the 20th century. She's incredibly bright. She's incredibly cultured. She's holding these roles, these positions that um, as Margaret says, not very many women have, have held. Um, she goes, she writes in her diaries about going to um, concerts, about going to lectures, lectures on you know, psychology and, and going to, you know, she discusses Shavian drama and, and she's, she's brilliant. Um, also, she's got a real writerly eye. Her descriptions of the weather are beautiful. Her descriptions of mood, her, her hunger for life, 
at the same time, she's writing about um, how she's very glad today that her hair is manageable. It's it's on it's on the cusp of being um of being manageable and not too greasy. And um, her nails are good because she's she's painted her nails and they're not too chipped. And she discusses um in detail the outfits that she's wearing. You know her her Hungarian embroidered skirt with this cerise um bodice and her 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 jumper. And so she she and her, her makeup she, she's discussing all of these um you know aspects of life and at the same time she articulates so heartrendingly the turmoil and the passion of this love affair that she tries to break off and finds herself unable to to break it off she had they have a break and 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 she talks about just a sense of relief when they reconnect someone understands her um she discusses as well in such an interesting way. Um, you, we think of women at that age and we think at, at that time, and she discusses in a, such an interesting matter of fact way, the ways in which women could get around um, being an unmarried mother and having a child. You know, you find a sympathetic gynecologist who writes you a, a certificate saying vaguely, you need um, a period of rest related to gynecological issues for several months. And maybe people know or suspect, but they don't say anything and you go back to work. And, and it's so interesting hearing how people worked around those things, how women helped each other and how Dory, most of all, she refuses shame. You know, she refuses so much of that constricting societal pressure because she believes in what she's doing. She believes in the purity of her heart's affections. Um, she believes she she makes a new life possible I think she's one of those women I think who opens a portal and holds it open and holds a space for so many others to go through after her. I think one of the interesting things in the diary is is the way in which actually her male colleagues as well as her female colleagues are actually quite helpful mm -hmm. when, when she's when she's coming back to London after having been in Belfast and she's getting near the birth um, one of her senior colleagues is uh, asking his wife where it would be a good idea for her to have her baby. And, and they, were, they were actually not nearly as antagonistic as one might have thought they would be. She didn't know they were going to be like that. And she was a very attractive woman, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that helped her in a way. She, she got on well with her colleagues and... and they, they in turn were supportive of her. Well, for me, uh, currently, uh, the, the only one of the three of us still uh, residing in Northern Ireland, it is uh, incredibly difficult and uh, quite humorous for me actually to imagine uh, Doreen uh, arriving in Enniskillen in 1941 and all of the, uh, the tongues wagging and the drama that that may have caused um, out there in County Fermanagh, but it was, to Belfast that she arrived in March 1941 and she um let's just say she was not initially full of praise for the city um Margaret could you share some of Doreen's thoughts on the city of Belfast in 1941? Yes I I mean I think one has to bear in mind all that back um, drop of of having to leave everybody that she, that meant anything important to her behind and in the middle of the war and with only a month's notice, arriving in a place where she had almost no um, contacts at all. She had, um, 
she had a great friend from college, Mary Rowley, who um, knew of somebody who lived there. And she did go and visit him. And uh, but she made her own she made her own contacts, partly through the office, um, but also making inquiries of where she could live and so on. She was she was great on travel. She really liked going to new places on the whole and exploring them and and this comes through even although she's rather negative about Belfast to start with she she does want to explore it you know she goes for walks around it she goes to Newcastle to see what Newcastle is like um, and she gets to have quite a good relationship with the with the people that she does meet there so it, it all got a bit better I think after the initial um, blow really of, of having this happen to her yeah, you read those lines. I mean, she says, Belfast is a hideous place. I go to the office in a rattly old tram along a street without one building worth looking at, except perhaps a new BBC building. And the shops are not bad, but expensive. It seems strange to see them all with unbroken windows. I could not face hunting for digs. So I buried my gloom in the cinema for three hours. And you think here she is and she's away from her lover. Travel permits are impossible to get hold of. Letters are going to be censored. Um, she's not able to phone. Um, she's newly pregnant, um, you know, and also she's she's so intrepid, but it's impossible to get hold of ordnance maps. She's a really keen walker. She goes yeah. walking a lot. But of course, you can't get hold of maps um, because there's there's a war on. And so it's um, but you read the diaries and you see how you see the friendship she strikes up with her landlady, yeah. um, you know, and the joy the joy that she takes and her landlady brings home, you know, some lemons and a couple of pairs of stockings and a jar of marmalade when her landlady goes to Dublin and shares them with Doreen. And, and she's, um, she's, there's a sort of irrepressible quality to her. There's an optimism, a determination. Um, she makes the most of things. And I think that's one of her most engaging qualities. And it really, it really shines through. Mm -hmm. But she, of course, she didn't, she, did, she didn't remain there very long. She'd probably have settled down, actually, if, if she hadn't been in the situation of, of, of pregnancy and so on. She, she was clearly going to be finding positive things in, in Belfast. But she actually was very, she was very taken with Dublin. She went and visited Dublin um, for a weekend. And uh, that love of Dublin went on. And she, she took us... Um, on holiday to Dublin. And um, that was really the part of Ireland that I think she felt her, her heart really was in. I think she, she was very keen on, on Bernard Shaw and um, the Gate Theatre and um, the Abbey Theatre. She, she, she really liked the creativity that she connected with Dublin, I think. Um, some of our listeners, uh, the, the keener eared amongst them may have uh, noticed myself and Lucy referring to Doreen, uh, while uh, Margaret refers to Doreen. And um, this is something that Lucy actually um, brought up in her in her book. I think it's around the, the pronunciation of ballet. Um, and there, there's a line in the book about... Um, how the, uh, the the characters in Belfast wish that they had uh, Doreen's more beautiful artistic uh, pronunciation of the ballet rather than our more kind of flat-footed uh, or jump into uh, the ballet. Um, 
but um yeah the lucy your your novel these days is primarily set in east belfast and the descriptions of everything whether it be the language whether it be the scenery the weather everything is incredibly detailed how difficult was it for you to to create that vision of the belfast of yesteryear one thing that was quite easy is that my novel is set during um, the Belfast Blitz of April to May 1941. So it's a very, very tight time frame. And so there are newspaper archives. You know, when I when I was researching it, um, I was I had diaries like Doreen's Doreen's. And and so she because she's such a brilliant chronicler, she writes about what the weather's like and she writes about what shop she goes to and where she goes. So you can glean a lot of details from that. Um, I was also able to you know, go to the newspaper archives. Um, there's an account of a football match in my novel. And I was able to read match reports <laughs> that were published in the, in the, in the newspapers of what, the, what had happened in the match. And so I was able to use all these things. Um, of course, that's, that's incidental. You know, a lot of that is the scaffolding. It's a story that really has to work. Um, you know, if I make, 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 a, make a day, the novel's not going to stand or fall on that, but it will stand or fall on, on the story being true and, and plausible. But what I did with the novel is um, I was so delighted to find when I was reading Doreen's diaries that she does live very near. Um, uh, I set the novel on Circular Road, a sort of leafy suburb in um, East Belfast. The C.S. Lewis family, C.S. Lewis's family live on that street. Um, it's you know very respectable middle class. It was my my starting point um, for the novel, which takes in the wider city of Belfast. But it was brilliant that Doreen was so close there, um, because I imagined her. My character Audrey um, is twenty one, is much younger, and sees Doreen as such a role model. Um, but it was interesting to plot where on a night that Doreen goes for a walk up Circular Road, um, I could imagine my character doing that walk with her. Um, and so everything that I use, when I use Doreen in, in the book, um, when I use Moya Woodside, when I use real events, they are as faithful as I could keep them. You know, I, I weave my fiction. I love the way Hilary Mantel talks about doing it. Um, her book, A Place of Greater Safety, that she wrote about the French Revolution. Um, her, her novels, her great, great trilogy of novels about, about Thomas Cromwell. She talks about how you... Um, you sort of hang the fiction between the facts and those mysterious leaps that a novelist can make in um, assuming or thinking what if or, or working with the facts almost as your springboard. And that's how I saw my writing of the novel. Doreen in my novel, of course, we see her always through Audrey's eyes. Audrey's much younger and Audrey is very in awe of this very capable, very cultured, um, to Audrey, older woman. Um, Audrey at the start of the novel my character is engaged and so is going to have to leave her job which she rather she likes her job she's ambivalent about leaving it and for her she sees Doreen who who knows poetry who knows books who knows all these places in London who knows theatre who can discuss psychology who can discuss all these things she's she's rather in awe they strike up a friendship over the course of the novel and I imagine that meeting someone like Doreen would have changed my character would have opened up new ways of being for her um, but the Doreen in my novel we only ever do see through Audrey's eyes really and um, and so in every reading that I've been doing of my novel I've been encouraging people to pick up the diaries as well to get the full picture of, of the character that we only see in glimpses. Yeah I think 
she was a very easy person to know. She, she didn't stand on ceremony at all. I think Audrey would have found her very easy to relate to. I think uh, both real life Doreen and uh, all of the characters uh, within Lucy's novel are very relatable. Um, just for, for anyone listening who, who really likes delving into the details of things, I am currently recording this episode of the podcast about two or three hundred meters away from where Doreen's house was. So I, I just live one street away in Sydenham in East Belfast. So I could just walk to the end of my road and, and see where uh, that house stood during the Belfast Blitz. Um, mm -hmm. for, for anyone who doesn't know the details of the Belfast Blitz, uh, the Luftwaffe attacked Belfast over the course of four nights in April and May 1941. On Easter Tuesday, the 15th to 16th of April, uh, between 600 and 700 people in the city died as a result of the attack as high explosive bombs, incendiaries and parachute mines rained down on the city. Um, Margaret, could you please share just some of Doreen's thoughts on that Easter raid of April 1941? Uh, yes. Um, she, the entry about that raid um, appears in her diary for the 16th of April, it's a Wednesday in 1941, and in the previous weekend she'd been to visit Newcastle for the first time, and the start of that entry is about her impression of Newcastle, but then she comes on to the Blitz. Last night was disturbed. The sirens went at 1.40 and the all clear in the middle of which I heard what I took to be a time bomb going off at five o'clock. From 11 until four with scarcely 10 minute intervals, German planes kept coming over, continuously dropping heavy stuff. It must have been heavy as the vibrations were remarkable. The AA, that's the anti-aircraft, kept up a continuous barrage, but it couldn't even keep them high. You could hear them dive low before releasing their bombs. Our fighters were up two at a time. There was incessant machine gunning. It was the worst night I have had, either at Purley or here. At 12, I went to bed in the dark, thinking I was safe there as anywhere. And though it was impossible to sleep, I should be resting physically. Several times the bed swayed like a cot being rocked. Doors and windows rattled and I could see against the blackout the glare of fires. The most nerve-wracking thing was when the Germans glided in silently. The only thing one heard was the crump of bombs. I went over poems in my head. Keats Nightingale, Grecian Urn, Autumn, Bits of Hyperion, Shelley's West Wind and Night, Shakespeare's Sonnets, let me not to a marriage of true minds, and to me, fair friend, you never will be old. De la mer's when I lie where shades of darkness, so apposite with the last verse, look thy last on all things lovely every hour. They seemed even more beautiful and permanent in that inferno. And from those to hymns, O oh God our help, Jerusalem and the Magnificat, and I will lift mine eyes unto the hills. This morning, it was good to be alive, and I enjoyed every crumb of my breakfast. That's an absolutely fantastic piece of writing. I think it captures so much of, 
of the fear and the emotion and, and everything that would have gone um, gone through someone's mind on that night, but also the the hope afterwards, and just that that very sudden return to real life almost as well. You know, you, you've come through this massive life changing event, and yeah, for many people across the city, it it just it was breakfast time. You know, the following morning. Um, Lucy, in your novel, the Easter Raid sets up some of what I find to be the most emotional scenes. Um, could you share a short extract with us based on that night? Yes, of course. This is um, the short extract that I'll read. This is um, Audrey and her fiancé um, are up at the Floral Hall, which is a beautiful um, old Art Deco dance hall. It's fallen into completely shameful disrepair. It's, it, would, it would have been in the Bellevue Pleasure Gardens, that's where Belfast Zoo is at the moment, and it's this completely gorgeous venue. Um, it, I think there's a campaign to save it and restore it, or there are periodic campaigns, but nothing ever seems to be done. But this is where, um, this is where Audrey is when, when those raids happen. Then out of nowhere, the first wailing note of the siren which seems to come not from outside, but from somewhere deep inside you, the swooping rise and sickening fall of it. But before there's time to react, the anti-aircraft guns roar out too, the dreadful pounding of them, the shattering echo rebounding all the way up and around the hills. Oh shit, Richard says, and the word from his mouth is somehow more obscene than a stronger curse would be. What do we do? Already there's a clamour from the floral hall. The band has stopped mid-song and people are running out onto the portico to see if it's real, to see if it's really happening. The shadowy figures in the path below are hurling their cigarettes away, running helter-skelter, some on downwards, others coming back up. Inside, says Richard, we have to get inside. But aren't we safer in the open? The floral hall won't be a target, they'll be after the docks again, the airport. Audrey, come on! Wait, look! They look upwards at the first cluster of German planes droning overhead, releasing cluster upon cluster of flares. They watch the first magnesium flares falling, bursting into incandescent light, hanging there over the city like chandeliers. You can even make out the ghostly silken shapes of the parachutes themselves from which the flares are suspended. The pilots are laying in incendiary carpet, so the city and shoreline will be easily recognisable by the bombers who will be here any minute now, following in their wake. I know that, she thinks. I know they're coming. But yet she can't seem to move. It's so beautiful, so terribly beautiful. To see the city from above like this, under the night sky, lit by the flares. It's a sort of thing you never forget, not in a lifetime. It's another beautiful piece of writing, uh, just so, so evocative. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Lucy. Following on from the Easter raid, uh, the Luftwaffe attacked the city again. Uh, fewer people in the city died as a result of the further attacks between the 4th and 6th of May, 1941. Although all diaries, not just Doreen's, all diaries and correspondence from the time agree that the severity of what became known as the fire raid was actually much worse. Um, so could we hear some of Doreen's thoughts on that May attack uh, from you first, Margaret? Yes. Yes. Again, um, this, this was in the um, entry, the diary entry for the 6th of May, Tuesday. And the previous weekend, she'd been to Dublin. So the start of that entry is about her impression of Dublin. But then she goes on. 
She came back from Dublin on the Monday. I caught the six o'clock train and came from Belfast by tram, reaching the house at 11.25. 45 minutes later, the siren went and we had a real blitz. Our side of the river got it worse than on Easter Tuesday. The first half hour was the worst. We were in the dining room and the windows were blown out. I saw a piece of shutter fly across the room and a huge cloud of smoke and soot came from the fire before the gas went out. We went into my sitting room with an oil lamp as the fire wasn't lighted. All the windows were damaged except my sitting room and the little one upstairs. The ceiling of the larder came down and some of the moulding of my bedroom ceiling fell. The noise was terrific. It went on without a lull at all till 2.30 and gradually eased off till 4. We went to bed at 4.50. There was no water, no gas, no electricity. I believe the dockyard is badly damaged and there are some appalling fires. The centre of the city, offices, shops had serious fires and the office was saved by the firefighters who were a good team, reinforced by Cartwright and Bailey and co who came in to see if they could help, although they weren't on duty. By great efforts, they put out the fire which had begun to spread from other buildings and the damage was limited to windows and window frames. And she then goes on on Wednesday the 7th of May, in brackets at the beginning, she says, forced to stop last night because it was too dark and we have only candles. She goes on, we didn't wake until nine, but I had only about two and a half hours sleep. The all clear sounds didn't go because the electricity which works them was off. People emerged from shelters or from, were bombed out and made a lot of noise, so it was difficult to get any rest. The sky was alight with fires, but before I went to sleep, I heard the birds dawn chorus, a miracle of sanity and sweetness. Had to boil a kettle on the oil stove, had an orange and some cornflakes for breakfast. I took the wise precaution of taking cheese sandwiches and an orange for lunch, thinking correctly that it would be impossible to get anything in the city. We could get no milk, bread or tea in the office. The heating and lighting were off and by the afternoon there was no water. I was lucky to get a lift in a warden's car to a point normally less than five minutes from the office. We had to go by a devious route and I was soon quite lost. We saw appalling destruction of small houses, street shelters, a church quite flat. But I was told the casualties were not large because so many people had fled to the woods and hills. And that's an absolutely, I think, fantastic uh, example of just that level of detail and and everything that Lucy had talked about earlier, you know, descriptions of, of the weather, of the people around her, of even naming businesses that were operating in the city at the time uh, within her writing. Um, Lucy, can we continue just through uh, your novel these days with a little bit about um, what your characters experienced uh, during the bombings of May 41? Yes, of course. Um, one of the real touchstones for the research um, is Brian Barton's magisterial um, history book account of the, the Belfast Raids. It's, it's, you know, like 900 dense pages long. Um, and he has so much in it. One of the things he has in it is a transcription of a Luftwaffe radio report saying, um, my God, what have we done? 
after these fire raids, when the pilots, when the radio operators were looking over the city, you know, they described the rivers of margarine, um, a, a light in the streets. Um, they, just, they described just the total devastation. Um, one of the things I had to do when I was writing the novel um, was think about, I was thinking about how to, how to make human the scale of that loss. And you can do it through your characters, of course, but I needed to somehow get the, have a sense of elegy for what was lost, um, somehow contain it, somehow make sense of it. And so though Audrey and her sister Emma um, and their mother Florence in Circular Road are my main characters, my novel takes in a sweep of people from all over the city, you know, all different classes. One of the people that has a, a sort of cameo, one of my favorite characters, in fact, is the little housemaid um, that they have at Circular Road. And she's only 13 and she's very, very proud to be the, the breadwinner for her, her family. There's 10 of them in a two up, two down um, father out of work. He was a joiner at the shipyards. And um, she is one of the casualties of, of, of this, of the fire raid. We Betty Binks then, gone, along with her dreams of growing taller, her ambitions to take over the running of the big house, to take possession of the hand-me-downs and the excess jars of preserves and veg. Gone her apron and cap and bobby pins, and gone her drawer of sticking plaster strips. Gone the chipped enamel pudding basin that her ma would send them out with for a block of ice cream on a Sunday from a man come round on his trike. Gone the big oak press taking up half the front bedroom where she or each of them had slept as babies, snug in the bottom drawer. Gone the knitted swimsuits, saggier by each sister that her ma had made for the annual day trip to Bangor. Gone her treasures, her Sunday school book for good attendance with its coloured plates, the story of Pegasus, the winged horse who fell from the sky, and her sister Clara's Heidi. Gone the big family Bible with all the Binks' names written in, going back up past her father to his grandfather, his, which would be hers one day. Gone the look on her dad's face when the great hooting siren would sound out over the docks and he'd haul himself to the doorway to watch the shipyard workers streaming home, striding easily, laughing and talking, groups of three or four, boots, jackets, flat tweed caps, some for home, some for a swift pint before their dinner. And he'd sit in the doorway on his chair and they'd raise a hand to him, Evelyn John, and she'd rest her head against his shoulder and feel how much he missed it, missed it all. Gone the time he took her, aged only seven or eight, to Queen's Island, to the Thompson Graving Dock, to see where the great ships had been built and launched from. And walking home, they'd stop by the Queen's Quay, the Coal Quay it was colloquially known, to watch the heaps of dark glittering coal unloaded from the snub-nosed tugboats with their bright red funnels. The bright glinting light on the water, the sudden soot-brick shadows on the arches of the bridge, two men rowing a boat underneath. The way he pointed to the hazy city beyond the bridge, beyond it the gasworks, smoke tumbling upwards from the tall chimneys, beyond them the hills, and he'd said, this is your city, Betty, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Gone. Gone the bogey cart her dad made them from wooden boxes and old pram wheels and a rope. Gone the lamppost with a crossbeam, the old Victorian source that the lamplighters used to light at dusk, and which she and all the other children in the street used to swing around, and sometimes, despite herself, she still did. Gone the feel of the lips and the horses in the builder's yard who would pick the big velvety heads to eat the crust of bread or the handfuls of grass you pulled for them, managing to eat it even around the bit in their mouths. Gone the warm breath of your wee sisters as they toddled across the floor and got into bed with you in the night, twisting at a strand of your hair until they fell asleep. 
Go on the triumph of sailing a paper boat all the way down the gully at the back of the wasteland where the water from the houses ran. Gone, all of it gone, and with barely anyone to know or to mark it. Thank you very much, Lucy. Um, I think that that's a really valuable piece of writing that, that reminds us it wasn't just uh, those people who were tragically killed during the, the bombing raids that, that suffered um, during the Belfast Blitz, but tens of thousands of other people across the city um, were made homeless, um, had their workplaces, their homes, or those of their families and friends destroyed. Um, you know, I think around 50% of the, the housing in working class areas of the north and east of the city were damaged. Um, people were people were already living in poverty and then this just affected them on a on a very wide scale and really just changed lives forever. No, the descriptions are so heartrending of all the people fleeing, you know, there's people fleeing the city um, using prams, using bogey carts, you know, the ice cream man on his trike, the trike sort of saddled up with mattresses, you know, people can and my novel was published um, in the very week that war was declared um, in the Ukraine by Russia, and suddenly all those images of all the refugees fleeing, you know, you'd I'd never for a second imagined when I was writing this novel that it would it would come out in the week when there's a new land war in Europe, a city under aerial bombardment. And I read a tweet actually just the evening before um, the aerial raid started by a Ukrainian person and it went viral and the tweet said, you're about to see images of our cities destroyed. You're about to see images of us as refugees, you know, fleeing, carrying what we can carry, if that. And it said, but we are not, this we are not just this we are normal people living our normal lives um, please remember that too and it's heartbreaking to think of of that and that loss and and of the images that we're seeing of these millions of people who've had to flee and they're completely I was looking at images this morning of Mariupol you know just completely bombed raised to the, and you think of um you think of of, of those people fleeing by whatever means they can, carrying whatever they can, carrying pets, you know, just yeah. heartbreaking. I, I I agree with you. I this this um, account of the of the Belfast Blitz and also of the London Blitz that my mother's written comes back to me again and again as I hear the news from from Ukraine. Um, Margaret, your mother was one of those who didn't flee, who didn't flee Belfast during the Blitz, but uh, eventually would return to England where you and your twin brother were born. Uh, what can you tell us, just stepping back from, from the Blitz for a moment, what can you tell us about your early life and your memories of your mother in England? Um, well, my mother told us when we were old enough to take it in that the day we were born was the happiest day of her life. And I think that was true. I think it was um, achieving something that all through this published diary, she's had as a sort of driving force um, emanating from the very strong relationship he, she had with, with our father. We didn't know that he would stay around after, after we were born, but actually he did and um, I'm so glad that that he was able to be part of our life even though it was a rather small part of our life um, but my mother was incredibly 
enlightened in the way she was a mother. I'd love to be able to publish more of her diary to, to show that, but um, she was very, very devoted to us. And every moment of the day that she was with us, she was really engaging with us all the time. She was away at her work full time during the day and she had to employ people to look after her, uh, after us. Um, but when she was there, she was totally devoted and focused on us. And there were things about our, our, our childhood that I, that I often uh, remember about her. One was that she, she was very keen on reading to us the, the sort of child um, classics, Ivanhoe, um, Children of the New Forest, that sort of thing. And um, she also was quite a good piano player. And a friend of hers gave her an upright Beckstein piano when we were about three, I think, or four. And um, she used to play the piano for us to sing. We used to choose a hymn or a song every time um, we were about to go to bed. And then she would also play the piano after we'd gone to bed. So I would fall asleep listening to her playing um, the piano and um, another another memory I have of her I had a, quite a nasty episode of of pneumonia and at the time um, we were kept in bed for ages after something like that happened and I was so bored and I used to absolutely long for her to come home from work and when she came home from work she just dropped her bag came up to my bedroom and gave me a Jaffa orange and she would peel it and, and talk to me while she did that. And, and it was just made my day. <laughs> the diaries, I've been lucky enough to read some of these further diaries, the unpublished um, extracts. <clears throat> and they are, they're, they're, they're so wonderful. Um, and the, for the, the juggle, the interesting from a sort of sociological point of view, the, the juggle of the work and, and family and but the, the details, the details of, um, she doesn't know that she's having twins. No one knows she's having twins until she's in labor. And then the flurry in the middle of a blitz, a city that's being blitz, trying to find a, a pram that has good enough suspension to carry two babies, trying to sort out clothing coupons, trying to sort out rations. All of that is, is in the diaries as well. All of, all of, the, all of the detail of that, um, they're, they're, they're brilliant to read. Well, whether factual or fiction, the stories we've been, been discussing today are absolutely incredible all round. Uh, we've got so much that we could talk about that we simply just cannot fit in a, in a podcast episode, even if we were to make it a two or three parter. I think we would struggle to uh, get through uh, some of the great stories that there are to tell. But I think we've we've whetted the appetite significantly here for uh, people to explore both of your books a little more. Um, can you remind us of the titles and where people can get their hands on those books if they want to find out more? Um, yeah, my mother's diary is called Diary of a Wartime Affair, a, a true story of a surprisingly modern romance. Um, I know you can get it from Amazon. I think you can probably still get it from good bookshops. Um, but I, I've recently bought six copies from Amazon, so I know it's still there. 
and Lucy's book will be right yeah, it's right. I want to start on, on, the, on that note here's um if you haven't already been sold on it I love um Anthony Quinn's description of, of Doreen's diaries it, as a book of the year in the Observer the year it was published and he says it's a remarkable record of private life recorded with a precision and feeling that might break your heart um, and I think that's 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 true. Julian Fellow says an extraordinary book and profoundly challenging to all one's notions of that era. Um, so I think, yeah, I can't recommend those those diaries strongly strongly enough. Um, and Doreen, she leaps, she just leaps from from the page. Um, my own book is just newly published um, in hardback. There's actually, if you get it through. Um, no alibis maybe if you're in Belfast or an independent bookshop they've done a really gorgeous um, limited edition that has uh, end papers these lovely end papers of um, Getty, Getty aerial images of Belfast in 1941 um, and then there's another hardback edition that's available in yeah all bookshops or online um, as a, a as an ebook as well and I will put up links uh, to where people can buy those books. And uh, we actually have, a, have an affiliate link uh, for Lucy's book that, through bookshop.org that will allow you to support independent bookshops as well as uh, picking up uh, a copy of this wonderful novel. Um, I would just like to thank you both very much for uh, joining me. Uh, on this episode it's been an absolute pleasure it's not my first time talking to you but it, it's been a while and uh, it was wonderful to catch up with you both again thank you so much enjoyed it thank you both and uh, i hope to catch up with you again soon we always have plenty to talk about um but for now we'll uh, leave people to go off get into their web browser and uh, start buying as many copies of those wonderful books as they can thank you very much subscribe to a wee bit of war on apple podcast google podcast or wherever you listen to your favorite shows that way you'll never miss an episode tell your friends tell your family tell your co-workers break all the rules of the official secrets act and why not leave a review to help others find the podcast? Thank you for joining myself, Lucy Caldwell, and Dr. Margaret Aziri. I look forward to your company again next time for another wee bit of war.